everyone, and welcome back to Orphan Entertainment, the podcast dedicated to public domain and abandoned media. I'm your host, Christopher, and as always, helping me stoke the boilers of this crazy train is my co-host, Lydia. Choo-choo! <laughs> <laughs> welcome back. Good to talk to you again. Thank you. I am always ready with my shovel to dig myself a big old deep hole. Boilers, Dig holes in trains? What? <laughs> no, but shovel, coal, hole, it's all there. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I want to thank all our listeners for continuing to tune in to Orphan Entertainment. If you this is the first time you're joining us, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, I don't know where you're getting this, but just so you know, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. should also point out that we have a YouTube channel that has many of the films that we discuss here on the show that you, you can go and get the, uh, the best copy that I can find, usually anyway, because uh, sometimes these things are a little crazy, especially the one we're talking about today. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, our, we have a Facebook group, and so you can swing by Facebook and search for Orphan Entertainment. If you have any comments or feedback about anything we say in this or any other episode, send them to orphanentertainment at gmail.com. You can just type out an email or record an MP3. We'd love to actually hear your voice, and we'd be thrilled to play it here on the podcast and comment and respond to anything you might have to say. We're going to take a short break here. We're going to listen to another five-minute mystery, and within that, you're going to have a promo for another wonderful podcast. And then when we get back, we're going to discuss... The Phantom Express. Another five-minute mystery. Just the same, Johnny. You're holding that curtain till the cops arrive. Girl was just found murdered in the star's dressing room. Murder, all right. Plain, cold-blooded murder. Cruel blow in the temple. Anybody know who she is? Oh, she's one of the chorus line inspectors, Sybil Lang. I see. Mr. Roberts, I understand this is your dressing room. That's right, Inspector. It is. Ghastly mess, isn't it? Mr. Roberts is Johnny Roberts, Inspector, the noted tap dancer. Being the star of this show, we gave him the big room. And you were on stage at the time the murder was discovered, Mr. Roberts? Well, practically. I'd been standing in the wings waiting for curtain. Uh, pardon me, Inspector, but that crowd out there is growing impatient. As long as no one can leave, I see no reason for holding curtain. People have paid plenty to get a look at Roberts. Well, I suppose there's no harm. The show must go on. I say, Inspector, that's sporting of you. I'll be back in five minutes. The thing that gets me... Mac here swears no one left the theater all evening. I'd vouch for that too, Inspector. You see, as producer, it's my business to keep tab on the cast. That means the murderer is still among us. But where, then, did he dispose of the weapon? He wouldn't have risked being caught leaving the room with it on him. We've searched everywhere, and there isn't a sign of anything heavy enough to administer that death blow. Why would a pretty girl like that be in a mess like this, anyway? Mr. Roberts! Confound these boisterous audiences! Oh, there you are, Jerry. Well, what is it, Roberts? What's the crowd kicking up about? Look here, Jerry. A star is entitled to some rights. I tell you, I won't have it. They're insisting, demanding I dance. Now, you promised me. Well, it says in the contract, I am see this show. No audience is going to railroad me. You don't mean you're going against audience will, Mr. Roberts. I thought it was the public that makes or breaks you. Not John Roberts. I'll tear up my contract first. I'll tear it up. That won't be necessary, Mr. Roberts. That contract is going to be broken anyway. John Roberts, I arrest you for the murder of Sybil Lang. Why did the inspector arrest John Roberts? Do you know the clue? In just a moment, we'll hear more, but first... What the hell is this, the wonderful Billy Flynn? Just some podcast that's supposed to be geeky, podcasting's Rich Sigfrit. Did you try it? I'm not going to try it. You try it. Screw that noise. I'm not going to try it. Hey, Flinstress, let's get Mikey. Do you mean critically acclaimed comedy rock star Mikey Mason, who hosts the Beer Power Time Machine podcast? Yeah, but he won't listen. He hates everything. (laughs) 
longtime critically acclaimed comedy rock star Mikey Mason. I don't often listen to podcasts, but when I do, make mine Geek Radio Daily. Hey, hey, hey man, that, that's a different promo. Between love and madness lies Geek Radio Daily. That's kind of accurate. There are some things money can't buy. GRD is free online. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Geek Radio Daily. Eh, we'll take it. Geek Radio Daily. All the geek without the weight. GeekRadioDaily.com And now let's see what the inspector has to say. What are you talking about? You can't arrest me. I'll sue. Just a minute, Roberts. Why did you just refuse to dance when that audience gave you that commanding ovation? You're wearing tap shoes, so you can't say you weren't prepared. Well, I, uh... I didn't want to dance, that's why. Oh, no, Mr. Roberts. I'll tell you why you refused. You couldn't dance. Those loaded taps you put on the tap shoes you're wearing are too heavy for nimble dancing. But they weren't too heavy to deal a death blow. You killed Sybil Lang. You might have walked away with the clue. Yes, literally walked right off with it. If that audience hadn't wanted to see John Roberts go into his act. Now I suggest you hand those shoes over as Exhibit A. You might find them a little too heavy when you walk the last mile. We're going to discuss 1932's Phantom Express. Uh, I don't have any real trivia about the film itself. Uh, Fortunately, I I just couldn't find anything really on it. Uh, I do have some notes about some of the actors that appear. As I mentioned earlier in in the beginning, though, before I get into that, uh, yeah, this film is very difficult to find a good copy. Uh, There are many, many out there that are worth at least a good 10 minutes chopped out of it for some reason. I was able to find one that had, the, as far as I can tell, the entire film intact, and you can find that on our YouTube channel. I was really disappointed, Lydia. I found it on uh, Amazon yeah. Video, you know, Amazon Prime. And even that one, even though it was labeled like the Phantom Express remastered, <laughs> I thought, oh, remastered. Wow, that's cool. How about that? Yeah, it's it's the crummy one with 10 minutes missing. Guess I should ask you offline what ten minutes are missing because obviously I watched the one on our channel. <laughs> so and I and I did actually pick up one on a different one just to see if the sound quality was a little bit better because there were some inconsistencies. But I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. So anyway, a little bit on the uh, the people behind the film: William Collier Jr., who plays Bruce Harrington, who's our our male lead in the film. He first appeared on stage at the age of seven and got his first movie role at the age of 14 in The Bugle Call. Uh, it was about 1916. He went on to become a popular leading man in the 20s and made the transition from silent into sound. He retired from acting in 1935 and became a movie producer in England. At the end of the 40s, he returned to America and went on to produce some drama series for television, including Mr. and Mrs. North and The Adventures of the Falcon. You want to look those up you can find them yeah, definitely sally blaine plays carolyn nolan she's our female lead here she was another child actor appearing on screen for the first time when she was only seven years old as well now this was in 1917 in sirens of the sea she kept away from film for the next 13 years or so but eventually returned perhaps due to the fact that all three of her sisters were actresses as well she was a sister of actress Polly Ann, half-sister Georgiana Young, and most famously, Loretta Young. Sally would appear in many small parts throughout the silent era and off and on through the 1930s. Some of her scenes, including one in 1931's Annabelle's Affairs, uh, in which she appeared in a skimpy lingerie, were fairly mm-hmm. risque for their day. I think though the most of those films are lost. <laughs> Not that I looked. <laughs> sure you didn't well i did i couldn't find no i didn't <laughs> but now that you've mentioned it jay farrell mcdonald who plays dj smoky nolan 
appeared in over 325 movies over a 41-year career from 1911 to 1951. And he also directed 44 silent films from 1912 to 1917. That's in five years he directed 44 films. Wow. He was a busy little director. No kidding. I think it's worth throwing out there that he did have a bit part in It's a Wonderful Life, one of the most popular Christmas movies out there. Absolutely. And my mom's favorite movie, I have mm-hmm. to say. <laughs> uh, McDonald was the principal director of L. Frank Baum's Oz Film Manufacturing Company. Wow, interesting. And he can frequently be seen in the films of Frank Capra, Preston Sturges, and especially John Ford. McDonald mm-hmm. made a transition to sound films easily, with no noticeable drop in his acting output. In 1931, McDonald appeared in 14 films, including the first version of The Maltese Falcon, which has come up for like the third time, I think, in a, in a row. <laughs> I saw that. That kind of surprised me. I've got to dig this thing up. No kidding. Uh, in 1932, he would appear in 22 films. So, yeah. not He was a busy man. Now, there was one more actor that I was really hoping to find some information on. Axel Axelson, who plays, of all things, Axel in the <laughs> film. <laughs> I could find nothing on him. He is known for this film, and that's it. He is the original Swedish chef. <laughs> he is. <laughs> that's exactly who I thought I, of. There's nothing in here that says that, but that was exactly what I thought of when I heard him talking. In this movie, he's like the Swedish chef. <laughs> well, he is you know, a Swedish immigrant into the States. He all often talks about the trains in Sweden. The trains in Sweden, you know, they burn on wood. Um, that's a horrible Swedish accent. I don't know where I was going there. <laughs> that's all right. All I can do is hergy-bergy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's completely insulting to Swedish people. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I, Swedish I, <laughs> I, I just I don't know where he came from. I don't know where he went. I almost got the impression that maybe, maybe he was another one of these um, – you know, comedians that they, they, oh, hey, let's get this guy in a film and see what happens. And then maybe nothing did. But, yeah, I couldn't find any information on, on online. So I, I have to think there's something out there on him. I, it almost sounds like a made-up name, honestly. Yeah, well, Axel Axelson? <laughs> playing the character of Axel. Yeah, it, uh-huh. sounds, it sounds made up. Yeah, it does. Uh, that that but like I said, that's all I have. I couldn't find any real trivia about the uh, the film itself, unfortunately. You know, the director Emery Johnson actually was an actor for a little while and did a whole load of directing. But again, I, I kind of trolled through all of these guys, the writers and the directors and the stars, looking for anybody that had done anything notable that I recognized. And the only thing I really recognized was "It's a Wonderful Life," mm-hmm. and so it was kind of just a bunch of quick make films that just kept the studios rolling it looks like well i was really surprised that this one didn't have more some some information on it because of uh, where and how it was filmed i mean we'll get into it but there's some fantastic uh train model work uh used in place of actual trains uh, Mm -hmm. throughout the film and then a grid portion of it is actually filmed in a train yard somewhere in, in the roundhouse, and so I thought I'd be able to find some information about filming locations, or or maybe just you know who did the model work and that, and I got I got nothing, came up blank. Well, it's interesting. Even if you look at Murder on the Orient Express, there is some amount of stock film in there, mm-hmm. so it makes me kind of wonder if there wasn't a bit of that in this movie that just there was fantastic filming, but it was just stock film, and we don't realize that. Yeah, possibly, but I did notice that. Uh, with uh, with the exception of when they're actually on the train or in the roundhouse, that the, the, the train on the track was all model work. It is, it is, and it's very obviously so, but still, I think, well done. Very well done. Uh, definitely for 1932, I think it was, yes. it was great. Well, the uh, Phantom Express opens up with a, a ghost train during the credits, which I thought was a nice little touch. If you look really close while they're giving all the credits, the train that's uh, barreling across the screen, somewhat transparent, so you can see the hills and the the mountains behind it. The film itself opens with the uh, 101 steaming down the tracks. Again, like I was saying, this is a, your first model shot. Engineer DJ Smokey Nolan and his fireman Axel spot a headlight bearing down the track straight in front of them. Well, Smokey slams on the brakes and the train jumps the tracks at a turn causing a crash. We get a couple of the uh, classic shots of the, the newspapers filling the screen, kind of filling in the gaps here for us. 
explains that this isn't the only incident of a mystery train causing problems. Well, next we join an inquiry about the accident. A uh, train tower worker who was stationed down the track swears that no train passed him. Well, Smokey and Axel swear that there was, there was, and Axel points out that it wasn't nothing that caused this giant lump on his head. Tell me, Mr. Conley, how do you account for not having seen that train? Because there was no train. I'd know if a train passed my tower, wouldn't I? There was two a train. Mr. Harrington, I've been a railroad man all my life. When I see a headlight bearing down on me, when I have the right of way, I know it. You bet. Nobody's doubting anybody's word. It's merely that the reports and testimonies have been conflicting to the point of improbability. Tell us more in detail just what occurred, Nolan. Well, we were rolling along about 60 miles an hour. Axel, my fireman here, had trouble with the oil pressure. I turned to take a quick look, and when I turned back, there was a headlight bearing down on me at full speed. I gave my train all the air it could stand. Just had time to yell to Axel. That's all I knew. I woke up in the hospital. Yeah, sure. And he was right there, too, Mr. Harrington. I saw the headlight, and when Smokey picked on the brake, I picked in your fly right straight into the firebox. Yeah. You can call it a goose train if you want. But I was a pretty good ghost that can race a boat like this here. You feel it is hard. There is something the hardest fan had about, I can tell you. Outside, a young couple drives up. The man is Bruce Harrington, son of the owner of the railroad. He and his girlfriend, I, I guess girlfriend, have, uh, have stopped so Bruce can get the keys to the family beach house. Apparently, he's uh, been pausing to flirt with just about every girl along the way. She makes a comment about the, the blonde at the, oh gosh, uh, the typographer or something like that. Yeah, you're just going to go flirt with that cross-eyed st- <laughs> st- stenographer. <laughs> stenographer, that was it. <laughs> well, he goes up to the, uh, goes up to the, uh, the offices, and a secretary tries to keep him out of, the, out of the office, but Bruce barges in. He tries to interrupt his dad, but is shushed and, and, and motioned to wait. Bruce takes a seat and spots an attractive woman in a room. Bruce does some nonverbal flirting, i.e. leers at her. I kind of love this scene. At one point he motions at a, you know, like a, a, a poster, like we would have, you know, that, <laughs> what do they call motivational posters now? And uh, Kind of a safety poster, wasn't it? It's a Feed with safety or something like mm-hmm. that, and he points at it and points at himself, like it's, like it was his know, idea um, or something. Yeah, <laughs> either that or you know he's quick but yet safe. I don't know. Maybe I'm a little too <laughs> jaded. I liked in the beginning when he spots her, he's kind of he's staring at her while she happens to be sitting behind Axel, and so he sits <laughs> there and he he sees him looking. He's like, oh hi, you know, kind of gives him a nod and a wave and. Yeah, Harrington sort of leans over and tries to look around Axel, and Axel's like, oh, and leans back. <laughs> it's cute. There, There is a lot of um, physical dialogue here that it, I think throughout, especially in the first half of the movie, I think that it's pretty amusing. There are a couple of lines that are pretty good and then also some physical humor. Well, the meeting ends, and Bruce follows his dad into his office. Bruce asks for the keys, and Dad gives him some grief. Say, Dad, give me the keys to the beach house, will you? Hmm? Sure. Sailing you. Cutting tennis balls, golf balls, polo balls. I'm getting tired. If you were only a he-man yourself instead of an ear... Nincompoop. Thanks. You'd be down here where you belong, trying to help me solve the mystery of these wrecks. Dad, give me the keys. I'm late now. You'll be a mighty sight later before you get those keys. I can't find them. But even if I could, you're not going to get them. You understand? Now, that's fine. Why are you going through your pockets? If you should find an extra hundred, I could use that, too. See here, young man. Before you get another cent from me, you'll settle down to business. Now, that is fine. Uh, I really liked um, how... Bruce would, his dad would start arguing and he'd be finding himself at a loss for word and Bruce would finish it for him. Like, if you weren't, if you weren't such a nincompoop, nincompoop. yeah, thanks. <laughs> and he says, stop finishing my words for me. Stop finishing my sentence for me. Yeah. Uh, dad at first refuses to hand over the keys or the, any money until Bruce starts working for it. 
while Bruce waits him out while Mr. While Mr. Harrington, the senior there, asks an assistant Reynolds if a rival company who's been making offers to buy the railroad railroad would could be behind the accidents. Reynolds assures him that they are an upstanding and reputable company. Oh, by the way, outside, the girlfriend is getting a little impatient in the car. She's on at least her second cigarette. <laughs> at least. Well, Dad uncovers the keys and hands them over, along with some money, to Bruce. Bruce heads out and literally runs into Smokey, who is with a woman uh, from the inquiry. And it turns out this woman is Smokey's daughter. His very pretty daughter, as well as she has a really phenomenal voice as they kind of launch into this conversation. Oh, holy Moses! Oh, I'm awfully sorry. Oh, that's all right. Not half as bad as the last one. Hey, okay. Right over. Okay. Yeah. There's Hanson standing over here. Come on, and act up here, too. That's Lady Payne. Don't learn this. I don't care what happens. Come on, now. Come on. Man. Do burn this. Don't learn this. I Do they argue like that all the time? You should hear him play Pinochle. Well, I should love to. But sometime this week be convenient? Well, I don't think it would be for you. You see, Dad and I live at the other end of the division. Oh, well, that's fine. Think I could come and see you, huh? Isn't it a long way to go just to see a pinochle game? Well, it is to see a pinochle game, but after all, pinochle isn't everything, is it, huh? <laughs> well? Oh, I have to be going now. Probably meet with a serious accident. Goodbye, Miss Nolan. Yeah. I'll be seeing you. Uh-huh. So long. She's, I love it because you can, you can tell right away that she's very sharp. And even though he's kind of running around with these, what we come to find are floozies, he mm-hmm. also is not a, an unintelligent man. I, I really enjoy that. Well, he tries to explain that it was his dad that was holding him up. But uh, since his girlfriend just saw him with another woman, she's not uh, believing a word of it. And leaves in a huff, literally tripping into the elevator as she goes. <laughs> I, I like the uh, line where he's like, no, my dad was keeping me. He, he was holding me up. He's, oh, she's like, oh, really? When did he become a female impersonator? <laughs> <laughs> well, Bruce, he begins to leave himself, but, you know, he starts thinking a little bit, and then he goes back to dad's office instead. He returns the key and the money and tells his dad he wants a job. His dad is understandably surprised. Bruce volunteers to investigate these mysterious wrecks. Well, Dad loves this idea and wants to set things up, but Bruce wants to do it his own way and undercover. Uh, sometime later on the old 101, which is apparently back in service, in the actual passenger cars, Bruce is speaking with a friend, and we find that this man will be posing as Bruce Harrington. The real Bruce will just be a friend looking for work. Do we ever figure out who, who this guy's real name is? Um, yeah, I thought I, you know, it's somewhere down the road, I think it is mentioned. It is, it takes forever for them to actually mention his name. And I, and now I've completely lost it. I think his, I want to is say it his Reynolds? name is Pete. No, Reynolds was the guy that was the assistant Pete. of, uh, is it, is it Dick Walsh? Dick. Thank you. Yes. There we go. Okay. So Eddie Phillips, which I, I couldn't quite figure out who he was, but yeah, he's got this random friend all of a sudden hanging out with him. Obviously, it's part of his plot. And I don't think he actually says his real name until, my gosh, somewhere halfway through the film, which is really At funny. Least. It took me forever to find out who is this guy. So most of my notes, I have uh, real Bruce and fake Bruce. So, <laughs> <laughs> Which is accurate. At one point, one of uh, – gosh, Carolyn, the, the love interest here, obviously, makes a comment. Don't you think it's strange that his name is Bruce and your name is also Bruce? <laughs> you know? But that's exactly it. It's, they just run with it. Well, speaking of Carolyn, she's on this train as well, along with Smokey and Axel. She happens to buy. He, she happens by accidentally, uh, actually knocked into the door by the movement of the train. The two Bruces uh, see her, and fake Bruce is rather taken by her. Boy, that was a good-looking girl. Did you see her? I sure did. And I want to meet her too. She's the daughter of Smokey Nolan, the engineer. Who's in the last wreck? Do you remember? Well, then you know her. No, but we're going to know her. Listen, you breathe up and introduce yourself as Bruce Harrington. <laughs> And the old man will be tickled pink. Then you can introduce me. I'm beginning to see the advantage of being a railroad magnet already. Sure, it's a cinch. Well, the Bruces introduce themselves to the Nolans and Axel. And while they're doing that, somewhere up on the track, there's a shift change is beginning at a tower. What's the setup? Everything on time? Yeah, everything but you. 
Hey, 101 lost 10 minutes at Morgan Hill, but he'll make that up before he goes by. Say, when Smokey gets back on that run, we won't have to be worrying any about 101. Speaking of Smokey, that guy testified at the inquiry that he saw a train coming right at him. What do you know about that? Why, he's crazy. They're calling the Phantom Express. Phantom Express. A train is either a train or it ain't a train. This train ain't. And we're the guys that know it. You're right. Outside of this tower, a car pulls up, with three and three men start to get out. But one notices that one of the uh, men from the tower is leaving. He says if they wait, they'll only have one man to deal with. That man also tells the others that there shouldn't be any hard stuff. Just rough the guy up. Don't blast him. Because the one guy, happens, he pulls out a, a small gun. They want to make sure that this guy sees the Phantom Express. So you know, the mystery thickens. So we've got some... some people that are apparently behind this mysterious train. Well, after the tower worker leaves, the men climb the tower and bust in. There's a fight with the guy that was working, and they eventually get him tied up near the window. I like this scene, too, because there's a part where one of them, you know, he says, oh, I want him to make sure he sees, I want to make sure he sees the Phantom Express, and the one guy says, oh, don't worry, you know, by the time we're done with him, he'll believe in Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, and he'll see the, the Phantom Express. <laughs> I like that line in there. Well, back on board the 101, Bruce is talking with Smokey. He asks if Smokey might know if, uh, if there's a good place to room and board near the, uh, near the roundhouse. Well, Smokey offers up some room at the Nolan house. Bruce can share Jack's room, which apparently is Smokey's uh, son, which we find out sometime later, too. There's a lot of characters that are just mentioned and introduced quite early on in the film, but... You have no idea who any of these people are. <laughs> it, in a way, I kind of like this. It feels very organic. You don't have those awkward moments where somebody walks in and says, let me introduce you to my friend. Uh, that's true. And then they say their name. So it's it's very, there. there is a, a facet, a very organic introduction to this movie. There are a few things in this that I was really impressed with, just how it flows a little bit more naturally than a lot during this era. Sure. I, I just think in this particular case, it would have been perfectly fine for Smokey to go, oh, you can you can go ahead and share my son's room or something like that. But instead he just calls him by his name and we don't know who that person is. But back at the tower, uh, the men leave as their phantom starts making its way down the track. The man tied up manages to reach the radio switch with his foot and warns headquarters what's happening. Headquarters try to call another tower to see if they can stop the 101. But this tower has been held up too. That worker escapes, but too late to stop the 101. This is one of those scenes, I think, where you really know it's a 1930s movie. <laughs> because you have the main office and the guy finally gets in contact and he says, you know, you got to stop this train. And the main office moves on to the next station. And they're like, hey, so-and-so. And the guy's like, rrr, rrr, rrr. and they're like, speak up. What are you saying? And he's like, rrr. and they're like, we can't hear you. And you go, this is a 1930s movie. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the engineers aboard the train spot the headlight and slam the brakes. This time, no accident, but everyone is thrown to the floor. Out on the track, there's no sign of the phantom train. So everyone, apparently everyone arrives safely. They get the train started back up. And we see Bruce settling in at the Nolan house. And we meet Jack, finally. <laughs> there's another newspaper story shown. Uh, this article uh, mentions that the dropping stocks of the rail line and that a syndicate has made an offer to buy it. But Mr. Harrington considers the offer to be much too low. The scene changes to show Reynolds in an office speaking to a businessman, not Mr. Harrington. Don't forget, Harrington's a fighter. Yes, and don't you forget this. There's no use of being a fighter when you haven't anything to fight. And you can't fight phantoms, can you? No. By the way, the old man sent his boy up to the other end of the division to snoop about. I've notified our men. That's fine. But you think another wreck and uh, he'll come through, eh? No doubt. Let me see. There's no moon on the night of the 8th. I wonder if the Phantom Express could come down the line on the night of the 8th. So it turns out Harrington's assistant, Mr. Reynolds, is a rat. He is a rat. 
You can tell by his mellifluous voice. Oh yeah, he's just too he's too smooth, right? <laughs> he has that voice. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like Darth Vader. <laughs> That's exactly what his voice sounds like. Yes. Well, we find ourselves at the train yard, and fake Bruce Harrington is doing his best to sell himself off as a company man. At the roundhouse, real Bruce is at work with the trains with Jack. As fake Bruce is touring the roundhouse with the foreman, real Bruce has some fun with his friend and tugs on his very white pants with his oily gloves and leaves a tray (laughs) of, I think, a greasy sludge for him to step in. This is one of those good humorous moments, yes. the physical humor that I was talking about. And, and you know, the, the foreman says, you got to clean that shoe off, you know, wipe that shoe off. And so he grabs the opposite <laughs> pant and starts rubbing on the shoe, the clean shoe. And I love it because I obviously, you know, these are these are old friends, but it's just a little bit of humor. I think that adds a touch to that. What what do these pants look like? A what was it, a, a towel roll or something? <laughs> and Bruce is like, "Well, look at yeah, looking at what they're hanging on." <laughs> I couldn't tell. <laughs> well, a couple of the other workers at the roundhouse who uh, suspiciously look like the guys that attacked the tower ask about the white pants fellow. Hey, what's that white collared bird hanging around here for? That's old man Harrington's son. Oh, that's the president's kid. He's wearing the railroad business and the white pants down. Well, it won't be many moons before the big bugs of this road get off their high horses. Well, it ain't the moons that does it. It's the lack of moons. We uh, take a brief moment to visit Mr. Harrington again back in the office. He is meeting with the syndicate representatives, and they're making their offer one last time. Harrington tells them that to give them till Thursday at midnight, he and the board will meet and they will either reject or sign then. Back at the Nolan house, preparations are underway for Smokey's birthday. I have to ask, I'm sorry to interrupt here, but if anybody's a CEO for a company listening to this, is this a common thing? We so we see so many movies where they're doing the deal at midnight. I just I just have to ask, you know, how often CEOs, I know there are a lot of you that listen to this podcast. How many of you set meetings for midnight to change over ownership of a company? Anybody that would like to reply to that, I would love to know. <laughs> that would be a good question. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm pretty familiar with the abbreviation EOD. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. But, you know, just as a side note, any CEOs listening to this, please let us know. Definitely contact us at Orphan Entertainment if you do a lot of detail midnight on Thursdays. <laughs> Absolutely. What well, the train yard, Smokey, who appears to be back on the job, he gets a lot of happy greetings and uh, and everything from everybody as he walks to the yard. He's even allowed to cut in line at the pay line. Uh, along with the day's pay, he gets a letter. It's from the home office. As a result of the inquiry, he's been fired. I think it's worth noting that up until this point, you have a little, you have this really cute little scene where um, Carolyn and Mama Nolan, don't know her actual name in the movie, and Jack and Bruce, they're all setting up for Smokey's birthday. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, they're they're building this cake and they make this cake. And, and, and I was thinking about it and I'm thinking in the 1930s, okay, wait, why are they like, okay, Granted, I was born in the late 70s, grew up through the 90s, and I'm looking at this cake going, oh, that's nice. But, <laughs> but you know, you're thinking in the 1930s, this is right after slash during the Great Depression, and they're actually making a cake, True. and they're writing on it. And this is a pretty big mm-hmm. deal for this time period, you know. And, and there's a moment where Bruce comes in, and Carolyn says, so it looks like we're preparing for a wedding. And he says, what? And she says, it looks like we're preparing for a wedding, you know. And during this time period, there's so much going on in this little two minutes of scene. I love it. This is a time period where a a man and a woman, if they even mention marriage to each other, it's already taken as a binding contract. And then on top of that, you have this Great Depression going on where people don't make cakes because they simply can't afford it. And they're going to this huge extravagance, you know. So there's a lot building up in this scene that we in modern times don't really understand. And we think, oh, it's an ugly cake and eh, whatever. She says wedding. But at this time, I think it's worth noting that during this period of time, this scene has a whole lot of import. There's a lot going on in this scene. So when you're watching it, bear in mind, people weren't supposed to talk about marriage to somebody they weren't already 
officially engaged to, there wasn't a whole lot of huge cake decorating and lots of decorating for birthdays. I just, I, I love this little tiny piece of extravagance in this history that we don't really understand today, but at that time was really important. Well, Smokey heads home and he spots everything going on inside from a window. So he puts on a happy face and heads in. Smokey and family, along with Axel and the Bruces, celebrate his 50th birthday. And I, I stopped it and counted the candles. <laughs> did you? How many were there? Because I didn't. It, it was 50. That's why I know it was his 50th birthday. There was 50 candles on his cake. Well, after they enjoy the ca- dinner, I'm assuming dinner and the cake, uh, Axel presents a gift from Smokey. The boys of the yard all chipped in $10 and bought him a nice new pocket watch. Now, 1932, $10, that's probably a week's pay or more for these guys. That was a, I mean, everyone really loves Smokey, apparently. Axel, at some point, actually even tells him that, you know, the boys probably would have chipped in $1,000 if, if they had asked him. I, so Smokey is well I loved. did a little bit of quick calculation. Gosh. <laughs> Sorry, I'm the money nerd here. Uh, yeah, it's like $200 in, in yeah. money today. It's, you know, $150 to $200 today. So that had to be a nice watch, too. It, it was. Smokey is, of course, a bit overwhelmed. Uh, the, the toy train that Jack and Bruce set up on the table. Oh, I didn't even really mention oh, that. Yeah. Isn't that. That was pretty cool where they set up. They had the toy train, and they set it up so it would just kind of keep circling the Yeah, cake. and then Bruce says, my, my dad gave this to me, one of these to me when I was a kid. You know, and, right? and of course, they don't know who he is, but obviously this is a big deal to his father, and so a big tradition to mm-hmm. him. Anyway, this this toy train that's been circling the cake happens to pick that moment to jump the track and crash there on the table. Well, Smokey uh, Smokey sees us. He excuses himself, and he goes to his room. There he picks up a frame with, that has several awards and medals that he's been given by the company. This is a little too much. He, he, he finally breaks down and throws the frame to the ground, shattering the glass. This man that has prided himself on his ability to support his family and has done an exceptional job as an engineer because he's well known throughout the company. And here he's lost his job because these people don't believe what he's honestly seen. And they have this like really intense emotional moment. And it, and again, it's kind of one of those things that's lost because it was done in the thirties and we, we do it now, but we do it in a much more dramatic way and in a way that people are forced to stop and take notice of. I think really the big main surprise for me in this movie was that they take these moments to really develop these characters and make you feel for these guys because this isn't just, Oh, some guy lost his job. Darn. You know, this is the guy, his, the trains have been his whole life. They really take a moment to really show that and love that they pull away from that traditional tracking of the main character the main love interest and they go over to this guy that has dedicated his whole life to this company and to this ideal of his life you know and he just drops his head in his hands and cries and it's even though i mean we don't understand it now because in the 30s you know it's just this quick moment that they pass over but we still do it today i i just i love it i love the emotion that they put into i think most of these characters they put a lot of emotion into it Oh, I think it's very impressive, uh, certainly for the time and everything, too, because at, at this time, the men are supposed to be strong and they're not supposed to show the, the this kind of weakness or this kind of this moment of uh, of um, oh, these emotional moments. And this is like the one time it's acceptable. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. To him, yeah. everything's falling apart. So I, I love that. They really draw the audience in. And you got to think, too, I mean, he's 50. So. At this He's time, so old. No, I'm kidding. Well, no, I'm just saying. <laughs> no, yeah. in, in nineteen in the 1930s, that is old. I mean, that he's looking actually- where 65 is retirement, probably 60 or 65 is most likely retirement, and that is okay. Congratulations, you maybe have five, ten more years, and then um, you know that that's the life expectancy wasn't all that much longer. <laughs> Now you're you're forcing me. I have to look it up. Life expectancy for a man was 61. Yeah. See, there you go. I mean, so yeah. I mean, this is a man where he is facing this this moment where he's like, okay, he's lost the job, the only job he's known probably, mm-hmm. except for maybe when he was a teenager stocking shelves somewhere or shoveling you, coal. Yeah. Or shoveling coal. You get the impression that maybe this is the only job he's ever known, and yeah, he's gonna have to try to 
support his family and who's going to hire a 50 year old engineer you Mm -hmm. know that that quote unquote crashed his train and that was crazy and was seeing yeah that saw saw a ghost train exactly Mm -hmm. well the uh the breaking glass and everything is heard by everyone in the uh and in the other room and the family go to check on him i love that i love that everybody else kind of keeps going but ma kind of stops and she's like oh i bet if you'll excuse me for a moment you know she goes to Mm -hmm. check on him yeah, and then everyone else kind of picks up, or at least Carolyn and Jack kind of pick up that something's wrong. And even Axel sort of, I mean, you get the impression Axel and uh, and Smokey have been friends for oh, who forever. knows how long, decades. <laughs> yeah, Since they both started on the railroad, you're sure. Mm-hmm. Well, fake Bruce, who's sitting there, who's left with the table with real Bruce, he apparently knew the whole time what was going to happen. He just didn't realize Smokey had actually already been told. He also lets real Bruce know that he has till Thursday at midnight to figure out the whole Phantom Express mystery. Fake Bruce, feeling a bit rotten uh, for being there, considering he kind of represents the company that just fired Smokey, uh, he, he tells him that you know, he, he puts him in a pretty awkward position, and he thinks it's best that he, uh, he leaves. So he apologizes to Carolyn and, and goes ahead and heads out the door. Real Bruce talks to Carolyn for a moment and promises that he will get to the bottom of this phantom train and clear her father's name. And that actually awards him a small kiss from Carolyn. Which is a big smooch in the 1930s. Oh, absolutely. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) And that at this point actually takes us to about the 43 minute mark of this film, which is only about 63 minutes long, if you get the the full version (laughs) which like i said we have on our youtube channel which i really recommend so i think that's where i want to stop the synopsis because this is where the all the really important stuff kind of happened and i don't want to give away i don't want to give away the secret (laughs) of the phantom express yeah uh you're asking about what's missing there are scenes where if you've watched if you watch any of the uh poor cuts there is suddenly literally just the scenes just suddenly end and another scene starts up and you're like, like uh, there's one moment when um, earlier on when Bruce is talking with his dad in the office and he, he comes in, I'm trying to remember. Oh, he's talking to him and his dad's yelling at him. And then there's, there's this really bad, nasty, sharp cut. And the next thing you see is Bruce stepping out in the hallway and running into Smokey. Ah. So huh. you miss most of his conversation the, with his dad. Actually, the humorous part, yeah, where he's finishing the sentence for him, for, and uh, uh-huh. his dad is checking his pockets to try and find the key, even though he's saying, "I'm not going to give you the key." Yeah, interesting. Well, yeah, you missed you missed the actual yeah you missed the scene where he actually does find the key mm-hmm. and does give Bruce the money because the next thing you see, Bruce is bumping in the smoky and then getting dumped by his girlfriend and then giving <laughs> his dad the key and the money. I'm like, well, wait, where'd that come from? <laughs> And there's another, there's another couple of them, uh, uh, scenes and moments like that throughout the film. It leaves you scratching your head on a few moments. But anyway, if you go to our YouTube channel, you don't have to worry about that. So <laughs> go to YouTube and look for Orphan Entertainment. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that's the first one I watched. <laughs> and mm-hmm. Otherwise, I would have been so confused. I probably yeah. would have liked this movie less. <laughs> I I think you absolutely would have liked it less. <laughs> I think we would be sitting here going, well, maybe it was good, but because of the such poor quality. <laughs> this weird <yeah>. editing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what did you think of the film as a whole, Lydia? You know, as a whole, I, I there are weird things about it. Uh, obviously, we don't go into the ending of it. So there's a little bit that I'm not able to divulge. But uh, th- the storyline itself was fairly standard, not super interesting. But what I did find really interesting about it and what I really enjoyed were the characters. I feel oh, like they... absolutely. Yeah, they took a lot of time, I think, in, in specific moments to really draw out the characters a little bit and and more than just the main two characters where you see that in you know the original shall we dance where the the main two characters are just phenomenal and then you have these two little side characters that they draw and everybody else is just flat but in this movie even the characters that aren't super involved in the plot you still find a moment to really enjoy them and to kind of understand a little bit more about their motive so i really enjoyed that about this movie i felt like it was a little unusual just because of that I really liked and much kind of on the same um, same token as what you're talking about is that 
you know, the quote unquote stars of the film will disappear for a good 10, mm -hmm. 12, 15 minutes. And, you know, we focus on the other characters. The, mm -hmm. So the other characters in the film are just as important to the story or to what's going on. Not so much important to, you know, the mystery of the Phantom Express, but they're victims of this mystery. Mm -hmm. And so we actually spend time with them. We spend time with Smokey. We spend time with Smokey's family. Mm -hmm. And I, I, that's what I really appreciate. And you do, that's where you get a lot of the little bit of, you, you get certainly a lot of humor with Axel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I do wish, I mean, we get the humor between uh, the two fake Bruces there in the train yard. I wish we had a little bit more, I guess, pre-knowledge of who these people were in relation to each other. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a very short movie. I, the version we have up is uh, uh, 64 minutes. You know, if they had taken an extra 10 or 15 minutes, they would have had a lot of time to introduce these other characters and give them a little bit more of background. But I think, you know, that again, that again falls victim to the era that this movie was made in. Possibly. You know, the impression I really get from this film, which is it's funny, and it's you don't notice it through the part of the film that we just discussed, but you get it a lot towards the end, the, you know, the last 20 minutes of the film, is it reminds me of the old uh, 1930s serials that, mm -hmm. would, that they would play before the main yes. feature of a film. It has that feel about it a lot. I it, was really kind of looking to see if any of the directors <laughs> or anything had, had previous work in those kinds of uh, serials, but I don't think there really was. Well, and it has that, you know, at the end of it, it has that quote, science, end quote, you know, where <laughs> I, get, I think you're right. I think it's very serial in its feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if not for all the, uh, where it's really, uh, character drama for the first 40 minutes and then it turns into the the real mystery i think yeah. kind of starts showing itself in the last 20 it's a it's like a movie of it's like two very different movies that just kind of get weaved together it is <laughs> and it's like the first half is like oh these interesting people and there's the stuff going on and we want to know what it is and then the end it's like oh crap we have to finish this movie quick let's throw some of together you know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of more the feeling i had in the second half yeah, it's kind of a bit how I felt. Uh, as far as Othel Rainey's as an, an enjoyment, I think just a solid three for me, actually. It's not that I didn't dislike it. Uh, it's just I didn't love it. I, I, I enjoyed it, but it's not something that you absolutely have to see, certainly. I'm I'm going to agree with you on that one. I think it, you know, it's one of those where if, if the characters had been any less interesting or any less enjoyable, it would have gotten an easy two from me. Mm -hmm. uh, just because there is nothing new, nothing specifically innovative in it. But you do really enjoy the characters and they do take some a little bit of time to kind of get you involved with them and help you see the intelligence of some and the the character of others. And so, you know, the characters are what make it for me. It's not specifically that it's a fantastic storyline. I think it had the potential to be a really great storyline. But again, whether it falls to the era or whether it falls to the writing, I think it turns into that feeling of being just a short film. And, uh, and the, the end result is you have some great characters and not a very strong plot. So I think a three is fair. Yeah. yeah not a strong plot, but uh, what is there, I think, is actually written pretty well certainly within the characters i mean i appreciate that they go to the, the trouble of actually making fake bruce feeling really odd about being in the house when and when they find out that smokey's been fired and, I lo yeah and there there aren't very many really super two-dimensional characters in this mm -hmm. i think the only really arguably two-dimensional characters are the bad guys and right. that's kind of maybe uh, the result of a human perception of bad guys. Now that I mentioned that even fake Bruce, when he's sitting there talking with Bruce at the table, he tells him like, look, I'm, I'm done. You know, mm -hmm. this is, this he is does. bad. I, you know, I didn't, this is what, isn't what I signed up for. He was ready to call it quits and pretty mm -hmm. much, you know, let everyone know who, who he is and who the other Bruce is. But I, in the end, he's just, I'm really sorry. I gotta go. Yeah. <laughs> but it was it, that, that little bit though. That's, that's very, Intelligent of the script. Yeah, mm -hmm. they make yeah, him very, very human. human. Yes, everyone in the film is very human. I think is what I find. There's really, uh, like you said, other than the bad guys, which are very two dimensional. No one's a real character or anything. Mm -hmm. they're, they're just not. all. 
they're they're people that you uh, may you maybe that you know or you've heard about or your dad's told you about the, the you know the, the guy that works down at the plant uh, you know that would be like mm-hmm. smoky or something uh, well i like it in near the beginning bruce's dad says you know if you were a real he-man instead <laughs> yes. of you know and and i like it because the that is the thing you know he's not that it's not that he's a bad guy it's mm-hmm. just that he's he's not had to try very hard in his life and i think all of them he was born into into a life of 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 ease. Exactly, mm-hmm. and, and I I love that they don't they don't have it. Just as you said, it's not two dimensional, and I think that makes this film not a poor rating. <laughs> I don't exactly. know what what a compliment that is, <laughs> but but believe <laughs> it or not, that actually is quite a compliment because a lot of movies they they have a great story and then they just fail on the character, and I think that it's a much much less of a sin to fail on the story than it is to fail on the character. So they've done a better job on this than they have in recent years, maybe on some characters. Yeah, very, I definitely agree with that. Well, then I think that is probably going to do it for us. Another short film for the orphan entertainment episodes here. Uh, it was no less a fun one and certainly a fun one to discuss. Thank you very much, Lydia. Likewise. I always enjoy. If any of you guys, uh, went ahead and watched the film. And if you'd like to comment, please send those comments to orphanentertainment at gmail.com or come on the Facebook group and comment there. We'd be thrilled to hear from you. So until next time, I don't know what we're going to come up with, <laughs> but we'll, I'm sure we'll come up with something that hopefully will be just as much fun or certainly will be just as much fun to talk about. I, exactly. I, I don't think I've ever not <laughs> liked talking about them. So until then, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thank you.